Today's episode is brought to you by BlockFills, powering digital trading. Very glad to welcome to Forward Guidance, Ivy Zellman, CEO and founder of Zellman & Associates. Ivy, well known for her bearish call on housing in 2005, 6, and 7, uh, which ultimately led to the, the great financial crisis. Ivy, I'm so glad to, ha- to have you here. Welcome to Forward Guidance. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So Ivy, as we record in the summer of 2023, how would you characterize the health of the U.S. housing market? You know, Jack, it's uh, been surprisingly resilient. Overall, transactions are down quite a bit. If you look at new plus existing homes overall, we are running at somewhere between, call it five plus million, when historically we've probably been closer to six plus million. And a lot of that is really on the existing home front. And it's not because there's a lack of demand as much as there's a lack of supply in the existing home market. And in fact, many markets, given that we're at record low um, inventory levels, we're still seeing some cases of multiple bids in very good locations. I think it's really a function of people are disincentivized to move. And the reason they're disincentivized is thanks to J-PAL with mortgage rates plummeting. People were locked in at record lows, and we have over 90% of consumers locked in below 5%, and mortgage rates are hovering around 7% today. Um, in fact, over three, over 50% have mortgage rates below 3.5%. So that just that definitely a disincentive. The new home market, which is uh, market share-wise, 15 to 20% of total transactions, is actually um, doing quite well as it's gaining share. Pre-pandemic, the market share was closer to 10%. So what we've seen is that as people truly for demand reasons, whether it's relocation or job opportunities or just families growing, are really looking to the new market where there is ample supply as opposed to the existing market. And therefore, the new home market is outperforming and gaining share. So you've got a chart from Zellman and Associates showing that mortgage rates and mortgage spreads, so mortgage spreads over U.S. Treasuries, are uh, very correlated, or I guess negatively correlated to price. So when mortgage rate spreads, more expensive for people to borrow money and buy a house, and price growth either goes down as negative or it is uh, less high. So why uh, over the past year has the, the housing, has it, has it fair to say, has it not gone down by as much as the historical relationship would, would say? If mortgages went from, let's say, 3% to 7%, uh, on a historical basis, would might one would have expected housing to have gone down more. So just walk us why you typically see rising mortgage rates, rising mortgage spreads, uh, slow down the housing market. And uh, could you walk us through why that might not have played out? uh, What would have happened to have caused it to be otherwise this time? Well, I think first, looking back historically, with the exception of the GFC, we really haven't had nominal home prices decline post-World War II on a national basis, you've had regional declines. And so first and foremost, I don't think we're in a situation where we're in a robust economy. We have very strong and resilient job growth. We have significant wave, wage inflation. As you recall, as rates initially backed up as the Fed began their tightening cycle, we did see housing weaken. In fact, 22 was a very challenging, uh, call it nine months of the year, was significant pressure and home prices were down in some markets in the new home market. Some markets were down a net net of about 20 plus percent. So there was a significant amount of pressure. And I think the dynamics of people being concerned that home prices are under pressure. I don't want to buy home 
I don't want to buy a home if, if values are going to decline, really was a confidence factor that was a normal reaction of being fearful that you're going to lose, you know, it's going to be a bad investment. And so as the builders adjusted their inventory that was available or inventory that was canceled and was providing mortgage rate buy downs, which is a significant part of what consumers are able to offset affordability problems with. So if prevailing mortgage rates today are 7%, many builders will buy down the mortgage rate to 4.99%. And we'll start, what is a buy down? What does that mean? A buy down just means a builder is taking what would be a 30 year fixed rate instead of um, arguably giving that person a mortgage rate at 7%, they're locking them in at 4.99% as one product offering and they're eating the cost of that. So that's a hit, direct hit to their gross margin. But for them, it's better to do that than to sit on inventory, which is obviously has high carry costs and other significant investments. They'd rather move the inventory than have it sit. So there's a combination that the consumers started to feel better that maybe the housing market, I'm getting a good deal now. So we started to see the housing market stabilizing. And then, in fact, we started seeing the housing market really this spring, call it January, typically spring starts uh, post-Super Bowl uh, Sunday in, in February. But we did start seeing January, February showing sequential and better than seasonal improvement that frankly had continued through the first half. So I think the dynamics, one, we can argue the affordability in the United States is very stretched. We're 20 to 25% above historic trend line. So you kind of ask yourself, well, what's going on? Well, we know the builders are utilizing tools, predominantly financing tools, to offset some of that those constraints on affordability. Secondly, as I mentioned already, the inventory is extremely tight, record tight levels. If you look at the absolute level of inventory today that is available for consumers to go buy a home, call it a million homes are available for sale. At the pandemic, when housing was surging during the pandemic peak, there was 2 million homes available for sale. So inventories have continued to decline so much so that there's so minimal amount of choices. So if you think about 130 million households in the United States, you don't really need that many homeowners or prospective buyers to be in the market to get to call that five plus million total transactions. But the existing market, because it is so tight in terms of that availability, we're seeing more support again for the new home market, but it's a share gain. Transactions overall are compressed. Pricing, again, I go back to the idea of job growth being more resilient. The other interesting thing, Jack, is that we see this incredible wealth transfer that has been going on, but has only accelerated from Xers and boomers. You know, the estimates are anywhere from I've seen 80 to $100 billion are transferring that wealth to their millennial children and their Generation Z children, not when they die, typically what had been the case, but now and providing them, whether it be down payment assistance, outright purchase of the home. And that has been a supportive factor, again, that we look at to understand why is housing so resilient. And then lastly, there's still the relocation that occurred during COVID that we saw the migration to those lower cost of more affordable markets or more desirable markets in terms of you know, taxes and climate. And that has been one of the factors that has allowed the South, we call it the smile states, called the United States at the bottom of the country and sort of up through the coast. Those markets have been outperformers really during predominantly post-22 
with the Midwest now starting to catch up a bit. So um, anyway, long answer to your question, but that hopefully gives um, your listeners a bit of a backdrop. Right. So there's the existing home market where home buyers buy a house from somebody who already owns the house. And then the new home market where people uh, buy it from a, a home building company that just built the house. And in the existing home market, supply is down because no one wants to sell their house because a lot of them got a mortgage financing at 3% or 4%, very low rates. So if they were to sell their house, they'd have to get a new mortgage at a much higher rate. So supply is down in the existing home market, which is the biggest one. And as such, a lot of the demand is going to the new home market. And that's why you know we've seen a, a home building stocks uh, on, a, on a relative tear this year. One other point that I'd like to mention is that because we are an aging population, you know, I'll give you numbers, you know, those that are aged between 18 and 24 in a given year will move 50% of the time. So in a given year, 50% of that cohort, sorry, will move. When you get to be my age, you know, in the 55 to 64 cohort, it's roughly seven to 8% move. So as you, your population ages, that slows mobility down. And we've seen a significant slowdown that really commenced in 2013. That's actually accelerated. That's magnifying the, the also tight inventory on top of the disincentive, which might be a greater part of what is, is constraining the market, but it's also a factor that needs to be understood. Okay, thank you. So looking back to the uh, kind of bull market and housing that started in 2020, a lot of it driven by people you know can work from home, so they go into uh, markets that they you know, never would go into to, to buy a home. Uh, how just how uh, much did housing go up in the U.S. Uh, prices, and is there a, a a precedent in in American in American history, and, or or was it you know close to all the the, the most rapid appreciation in, in housing because it, it was quite remarkable. You know, nationally, I think that we um, were in that thirty percent from kind of pre-COVID average. So that's not that dissimilar to where the appreciation was during um, pre-GFC. But we had markets that, you know, in some cases more than double, depending on the MSA and and suburban markets that may have even tripled in value. So I think that it may not be as unprecedented as you think, because not dissimilar in really 2005, six prior to the market really slowing really 2004 and most of 2005 and part of 2006 before the market really started seeing pricing pressure. Thanks. And so it was somewhat comparable to the price appreciation of 2004, 5, 6. We know that ended badly. Could you uh, establish some similarities or perhaps differences between the bull market and housing of 2020 and 2021 uh, 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 between that and 2004, 5? Because in 2004 and 5, it was a lot of people Getting uh, mortgage financing that they could not sustain, you know, teaser rates that would that would go up, uh, a lot of uh, you know stated income, uh, uh, verif- no verification uh, loans. In what way? And we know that that you know ended. It was not sustainable. In what way is that different? And if it is different, do you think it might be a little bit more sustainable? Well, I think the housing market during the you know housing boom was really fueled by exotic mortgage products. And that was a national phenomenon. So people with, you know, basically no income and and arguably those that, that could lie about their income, there were so many um, unfortunate aspects of lending that really were the go-go days that created the, the crash. When Dodd-Frank came in in 2014 and our legislators put the qualified mortgage basically in place that you actually have to qualify for a mortgage, it really created, a, a call it regulation, uh, guardrails, regulation, that has kept the mortgage market very sound and prudent. 
With that said, therefore, the housing market, I think, is on better footing. When you look at the broader economy and you recognize the you know, challenges that we are now seeing with bank failures and now lending starting to tighten, I think you're going to see more developers, especially those that don't have access as a public company to have low cost capital or just access to capital, you're going to start to see more um, challenges and yet not enough to necessarily 50% of the new home market are publicly traded companies. So their lower cost of capital, uh, better supply of land, uh, probably uh, stronger relationships with trades. So I would expect that the new home market could be more resilient than, let's say, the overall new home market. With that said, if jobs were to weaken, whether you're looking at you know, auto delinquency rates or looking at concern, even mortgage delinquency rates are, are starting to move higher, although they're still well below historic norms. You know, you just think about the economy were to weaken. You know, I'm reading about, you know, whether it's yellow going bankrupt or you have different entities that are now being concerned about, you know, they can't access capital as easily or the cost is higher where they're sitting on inventory that every day costs them more. What do they do? they start laying off. So if we start to see more pressure as companies are just being more prudent or willing to scale back and actually start laying off, I think that will impact the, the overall housing market. But you know that may be that housing arguably could be a taller midget in a very challenged economy. I think that certainly the CRE market has more problems than the residential market. Right, so that single family residential market uh, is endogenous weaknesses as you see it, it is uh, somewhat healthy. It's very vulnerable to the overall macro economy, but that's kind of a, an exogenous force. Where let's talk about commercial real estate, multifamily, uh, uh, also you know, known, known commonly as apartment buildings. Rents have been have been going up a lot since since 2020, so that's good for uh, developers who own you know, equity in the buildings. But also now their interest expense has gone up tremendously as interest rates have rose, and you know some of that's hedged, some of that isn't. Tell us about the multi-family market. Uh, what's been going on in prices? What's been going on in volumes? Yeah, sure. Um, the multi-family market has been operating well above normalized levels with respect to rent growth, blended rent growth, and really in 23 we started seeing new move-in rent growth decelerate. So, you know, we were seeing new move-in rates that were in the double digits in some markets, you know, 10, 12, 14% new move-in rates and renewal rates well into the high te- uh, the high single digits, creating sort of blended rent growth in that 10 to 12% rent um, mar- range in certain markets. Not sustainable. Historically, just to give some perspective, if an operator was able to get between two to 4% blended rent growth, they would be doing cartwheels. That would be great. So they just think about that in the context of where normal is. We're running, call it, four to five times above normal. Occupancy, extremely tight, you know, a very sort of normalized occupancy, 95, 96%. Our operators didn't have to deal with bad debt. There were really no evictions. Everybody was, you know, moratoriums on evictions, wasn't causing them to have to uh, deal with those aspects of, of having to re- release those units. Student loan debt, people don't have to pay their student loan debt. So there was a lot of, I think, cushion for the consumer. And today, when you look at the multifamily market, we have almost a, bill, a, a million units in backlog that need to be completed. So while we're seeing rents that are decelerating, as less people are able to work fully remote, 
They might even be asked to be come to, back to work three days a week, hybrid. So you're seeing people that might have had two dwellings or are not able to stay in the city where they moved to. So now they have to go back to the city that they had been living in previously where the employer's headquartered. So the, the, the amount of um, overall migration has been on the margin slowing, but the increase in supply coupled with the cost of debt for, op for developers and to operators in general has put pressure on overall their appetite to continue to grow and acquire or dispose or, and sell at values that are probably down averaging 20, 30, in some markets, 40%. So the market has definitely been under pressure. And because of the cost of capital, we're gonna see more distress as operators, developers cannot maintain the balance sheets, especially as debt, they have to start to look at getting permanent financing that just doesn't pencil anymore for them. So I think those are some of the factors that are gonna challenge that market we don't expect rents to go negative nationally, but we do expect rents, blended rent growth to normalize in the low single digits, probably back one to 2%, with some markets likely going negative. If rent growth for apartment buildings was roughly 6% in 2021 and 11%, 10.9% in 2022, uh, this year you think it's going to be just under 4%, and in 2024, 1.6% rent growth. So, uh, I mean, What's that going to do to developers who they've put up a lot of money to build these, uh, you know, apartment buildings, and they have expectations of, of rent growth? If they're only increasing one point six percent, what does that do to the multifamily market? Let alone, we haven't even talked about the increase in interest rates, where you know, real estate, you know, most developers use a, a borrow, borrow money, and they usually borrow a lot, a lot of money. Well, I think you know, think about the returns that they were making as they were underwriting. Um, their overall expected returns and rents went from the call of the two to four percent range to that eleven percent that you cited. They were killing it. They're minting money. So right now, the returns that they promised investors, or assuming their private capital, they're, they're going to see returns are going to be down substantially. So the question is, you know, are they capitalized with their own capital, or are they dependent on outside investors? And how much of those outside investors? Are going to be looking to redeem their capital that they contributed, their investments. And so you start to see that it's kind of more the haves and the have nots. Who's well positioned to deal with decelerating fundamentals in the face of higher overall cost of capital? I think you're going to have winners and losers. And we're, we're definitely seeing the transaction market, the really the first evidence of you know, the hit from higher interest rates with transactions down in terms of buying and selling, the number of transactions are down, call it 70, 80%. And I already mentioned values down, call it 20, 40%, depending on where and what market you're in. I think now that the fundamentals are starting to weaken without even having a job market slowing, I think there will be more risk, again, to those operators that may not be as well capitalized or as well positioned and, you know, it's also somewhat contingent on what markets you're in. You know, there's going to be greater exposure to the markets where supply that's in backlog that will be completed is more significant. And those areas are more likely to see pressure and more distress. Today, I want to tell you about BlockFills. It's a financial tech firm that offers crypto trading solutions for institutional investors. On Forward Guidance, we talk a lot about liquidity, and there's a reason. It's incredibly important when you're trying to enter and exit a position. 
Liquidity is the kind of thing where when it's there, it's easy to come by. But when it's not, it can cost you a ton of money, especially if you're a large institutional investor. What Blockfills does is provide liquidity as a service. They source liquidity for you from over 30 global venues, not only on all the exchanges, but also over the counter. Their OTC desk is prolific and can help you execute large trades and save a lot of money. Blockfill's mechanism Phoenix is a software as a service that gives you everything, trading, risk management, on-chain data, the heat map, the analytics, the charting, the execution, the order flow. It simplifies all aspects of the trade cycle to power your digital trading and make it much easier for you. If you don't have all of this in one easy place, you're gonna get distracted, you're gonna miss things, and I'm telling you, that's gonna hold you back. So if you're an investor looking for deep liquidity on a platform that combines everything you need on one easy platform, Blockfills should be on the top of your list. Go to blockfills.com open to apply for an account. That's blockfills.com open. Blockfills also offers prime lending on and off-ramp transactions between crypto and fiat and much, much more. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Needless to say, shelter costs, owner-occupied rent, uh, and rent are a large percentage, a significant percentage of consumer price uh, index and in U.S. inflation metrics. So it is safe to say that your uh, outlook, your expectation, your, your forecast that rent growth will be uh, quite low, not negative, but you know, quite low, 1.6%. Does that co- correlate to a, a view that inflation will you know, fall quite rapidly? Right. So if you just look at shelter for CPI, it's roughly 40%. So is that very significant? And what we've seen that the government data has lagged quite a bit from our proprietary um, aggregation of what we believe the overall rent component is. So we're expecting that to continue to decelerate and catch up to what we've started to see. But I will tell you, Jack, we're starting to see in some cases that blended rent growth starting to stabilize in certain markets and not continue that downward slide with respect to this year. We don't think that's sustainable. So even if now the seasonality of the market has proved a little bit more resilient than our forecast might um, indicate, we still are expecting 24 to go again below 2%. So it's just a question of when that shows up in CPI. It's starting to show up a little bit, but we think that there's more downside risk to CPI, therefore less inflation likely, at least as it relates to shelter. Thanks. So do you think inflation could fall below 2% in 2024? Uh, we don't forecast overall inflation. Yeah, yeah. We're just housing experts. We're not- oh, Rent, you know, rent growth is two, below right. 2%. Yeah, we do. We believe that it will fall below 2% in 2024. Right. So a lot of uh, multifamily properties are financed uh, using bank loans and interest rates have risen. Banks themselves are under some, some funding pressures, perhaps some capital issues as well. We saw Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, these banks um, go, go down- in 2005, six, seven, the uh, fall in real estate prices uh, um, and housing prices, needless to say, you know, inflicted a lot of damage on the, on the banking system. This time around, how exposed would you say U.S. banks are? And uh, yeah, well, I mean, what, how do you, what do you think the impact of all of this real estate issues you're talking about in commercial real estate could have on, on banks? Well, again, in terms of our you know, focus is really predominantly within CRE on multifamily. And I think when you look at community banks and regional banks, greater exposure to multifamily. I don't have the stats off the top of my head, but I do think that there is risk dependent, again, on their customers and how well capitalized they are. So as we expect distress in the market, I don't think that multifamily is the biggest problem within CRE. So to say that that would cause sort of a banking crisis as it relates to multi, 
I think, you know, you can talk to people within the office market where the real problems are not only percolating, but, but are getting accelerating more so in terms of the amount of financing that needs to be um, uh, refinanced, I should say, m- amount of debt that needs to be refinanced at these much higher costs that just doesn't pencil and there could be substantial foreclosures. I think that's one of the reasons the Fed is so concerned and the tightening of overall banks and, and how much uh, capital and regulation will only get worse for banks because of the pending risks associated with CRE. So yes, yeah, so you, you mo- mostly fo- focus on the, the multifamily um, well, we also do single family rental. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it's a significant amount of capital was chasing that asset class. There's a lot of built for rent that's in the pipeline that frankly, we're seeing less appetite for investors to pursue developing new communities because of the cost of capital or acquiring existing communities from builders. So we've seen a slowdown in demand there. It's still growing, but not at the rate it had been growing. I think SFR overall and, you know, a very small component built for rent today um, has done actually better than we would have expected. Maybe on the, um, you know, uh, beneficiaries of the home prices continuing to move higher in 23 sequentially. So as home prices are rising and affordability gets stretched further with rates rising, SFR has done a little bit better than we would have expected. But I do think that when you look at risk associated with that segment of the market, we just won't see as much aggressive um, pursuit of development and acquisitions to grow portfolios. You know, I think American Home for Rent is doing something like one third of the development that they had been previously doing pre, um, let's say, rates starting to, to rise. So you're seeing slower development from the build for rent developers as well as a significant decline in acquisitions of existing portfolios. And that will therefore curtail the growth and probably investors will not get the returns that they had might maybe been anticipating. Got it. Thanks. So returning to the uh, single fam- family non-rental market of purchase, uh, for 2023 and 2024, it seems that your uh, forecasts for macro housing uh, pr- uh, price appreciation are somewhere between negative one or 1% for new and existing home appreciation. Uh, so that's kind of a stall out in, in prices. Uh, can you tell us where, where, what, what, what uh, are you looking at that that motivates that that outlook? As well as for the economy, I mean, how well does an economy do where housing prices don't go up? Obviously, if we know that they go down, it, it can be quite bad. But if they don't go up, or they only go up, you know, one point one percent, as you have for existing homes for twenty twenty three, is that uh, you know a net drag on the economy, or it's just not a boost like it normally is? Yeah, I think it's probably the latter. I don't think that housing is going to be what breaks the camel's back, so to speak. I think the housing market might be relatively benign and therefore not the boost to the economy. But as you think about home price appreciation, I think where you've had many investors that you know list their homes on Airbnb that today are just not seeing the level of income they had been enjoying, their costs of capital are higher. We could see some of those more resort vacation markets starting to see inventory loosen as those investors might be forced to sell or arguably even um, see more delinquencies. But that's not a big part of the market. Probably just thinking about Airbnb and and investors in that perspective on short-term rentals, 10% of the market. On the other hand, you've got a market that's pretty sticky, again, with many people that are locked in with 30-year fixed rates that are at extraordinary low record levels. So unless they lose their job, our view is just that demand, because affordability being so stretched with the Fed 
aggressively trying to basically create um, scenarios where we're going to destroy jobs. And we have a banking system that's pulling back on credit availability. At the same time, polarization in our political outlook. There's so many factors that we, although we're housing experts, have to look broadly at the macro and make the assumption that demand is just not sustainable at these more robust levels, given what we know is coming on the horizon and knowing how stretched affordability is. The wild card is really anything that, you know, you think about going back to the discussion of, again, the wealth transfer or incentives that could be provided to developers to keep them um, in the game, so to speak. So if there was a, a way to give them um, develop more and get credits from the government, some type of first first time buyer initiatives, whether Washington decides we have an affordability crisis and their support allowing for more developers to get better incentives. I don't see that happening, but there are factors like that. But but we have a crisis for a lack of affordability. And we also have a very, very strong job market that is is really likely to slow. And that's what really is the drivers of our more, I think, cautious outlook on price, but not a disaster. Cautious outlook on price, but not a disaster. Got it. Thanks. Tell us about your outlook on demographics, which is really at the core of housing demands on population growth, as well as on household growth and, and household formation. You know, there's a lot of discussion about millennials that are, you know, roughly 75 million in total. You know, if you look at it simplistically, you look at the 1980 to 2000 timeframe, and those are your millennials today that are at prime buying ages that um, have now been in the market. So millennials have been in the market really called since 2015, 16 in that prime buying age in their, their mid thirties. So I'm not saying we're at the tail end of it, but I think it's like overinflated almost a decade later that we've already been benefiting from that. But when you look to your point about population growth, population really consists of three factors, birth rates, death rates, and Im immigration. All three have been going the wrong way. So when we look at the decade that we just completed 2020, we had population uh, overall growth rates at the lowest level in, in decades, maybe on record, I, to, I forget, between household growth and population growth, we had either the slowest second on households, I can't remember, and the lowest on population. And going forward, those numbers are roughly 8%, 7.9, 7 7.4% 7 compared to numbers that were substantially higher in prior decades. Now we're going into 2020, 2030, we're expecting those to likely get cut in half. So if you just look at the number of women you know, that are in their, um, you know, prime uh, birth rate or, or time of their lives when they've been having children, that has declined. The number of births per women has been on a secular decline for quite some time. Really, that started, I think, in the 1990s. So we have seen a tremendous pressure on birth rates. And we all know that even excluding COVID, death rates have been tremendously under pressure. And that's really part of an aging population. But you are going to continue to see that aging population um, impact the housing market. Ultimately, immigration can change, but immigration, as we all know, has been a, de a declining level of new um, citizens coming into the country or legal citizens, citizens. So that just means we'll need less housing. We'll need actual less supply. The perception is that we are severely undersupplied. I would just say that if we were going to build you know, developments, whether single family or multifamily and offer people $500 a month as a lease or to buy. Sure, there's a lot of young people that are living multi-generational 
that would be happy to move out of their parents' home or parents that have their, you know, um, their parents living there. They call the boomers the sandwich generation. So shortage is really a question of what's the asset priced at? And we don't think the assets are priced right to call it a shortage. And therefore, you you will see more household consolidation and you will see multi-generational living. And that's a factor that we think will only intensify, intensify. But going forward, less supply will be needed for that declining population. Thanks. And so it, the uh, demand has been growing, but much less than on a historical basis. Now let's talk about the supply because home builders were you know, building a lot in the early and mid 2000s. You can put up a chart that they have been building far fewer homes in over the past decade. So even as demand for housing has grown a lot less over the past decade, so has supply. Uh, is it conceivable that even as demand growth will be anemic over the next decade, as you, you know, somewhat uh, alluded to, that supply will be even more anemic. So it actually could be you know, somewhat, somewhat bullish, given that it's about the relative balance between supply and demand. Or do you forecast uh, the home builders should start building a lot on speculative activity as they were during the early 2000s, in which case probably not super bullish for price growth? Well, builders have been, or during COVID, they started after initially shutting everything down. And then when they recognized that you know, no one had predicted the housing market would be a, a pandemic winner and that people were going to desire space and distance, that the housing market would basically went nuts and the builders start re, re, re-accelerated their engines and started not only um, buying more land, but specking that land because the people wanted new move-in ready today, not, not three, six, nine months from now. And that actually continued. So development through COVID actually was um, accelerating to levels that we hadn't really seen the cycle. And in fact, now post, you know, the 22 slowing, where everybody then put their foot on the brake, they walked away from option agreements, we call it option abandonments, started to really slow the land acquisition and slowed spec. They've now re-accelerated that, seeing again the resiliency that we've seen in home buyer demand. Again, the market share benefits from the existing market. So, you know, builders will... You know, the way I like to think of it, they're looking in the rearview mirror based on the last two months of sales. So if sales are good, then they're going to continue to spec because people do prefer new move-in ready homes. Um, and spec is when they build a home without finding the buyer first, whereas the other part of the market is they find a buyer first. Right. But but think about this from the perspective of you count during the you know, 2009, 10, 11, when we were at the trough. And you therefore look and say, well, we underbuilt starting in 2009, 10, 11, 12, really through 2015, 16. You know, if you if you start the clock, though, back to 2002, we, we, we surge. So so you really depending on how you measure supply, it's when, where you start counting. Do you start counting from the trough or pre-trough? Because I think that's part of the challenge is where people are estimating this underbuilt supply is stemming from, it's where they start counting. And we think that that's not the right way to factor it in. You want to look at demand. So again, looking at households that, that are forming and then understand how much supply will be needed because of that household demand. So I'll give you the best example, the way to think about it. If you're a manufacturing company and let's say you manufacture shingles, well, if you have 100% capacity utilization and you get another order, you're going to have to build another plant because you don't have any more shingles. So if we have households that are not forming 
or decelerating, we're going to need less demand. But because of the expectation that we're at this substantial shortage, this this idea that we, we have millennials or buyers and they're going to only need more homes, I think builders can get in a position where they may overbuild. The problem with overbuilding, which we didn't talk about, is that municipalities today are really not equipped to deal with what today are, are challenges and impediments for growth, not just the typical ones with, you know, NIMBYs not wanting, you know, more growth in their areas, but also sewage and water challenges with school systems and infrastructure keeping up with the builders and their development. So we think growth overall is going to be challenged with only land inflation making the returns less attractive. So do we don't anticipate builders booming. Uh, just one macro or micro example in Phoenix and during the great financial boom, starts got up to like 65,000 in Phoenix. We hosted our senior analyst, Alan Ratner, hosted a roundtable with you know, developers, builders, mortgage, realtors in a room in Phoenix. And we asked everyone, and these are people that I think are a good reflection of what people's views are in the market. And we surveyed them and said, how, ma- how many of you actually think we can get back to the previous peak? And not even close. They think they're only from a labor perspective and from all the other variables I mentioned, will they get back to like 25, 30,000 because of all the constraints. So that's one guardrail, one regulator that will keep the housing market from getting, I think, too far ahead of its skis. Got it. And so spec inventory is very interesting. It's it's quite uh, lagging so that home builders build a lot of them like right before the, you know, at the, at the peak in pricing. So for example, there was more spec inventory, and this is from your chart we can put on screen, in, in 2008 than there was in 2022. Uh, and spec inventory bottomed, I think in 2012, which ironically, you know, would, would be a great time to build, build a lot of homes. Uh, for 2023, do you think spec inventory is going to go up a lot? It seems like through the month of May, you have it at just over 300,000. You know, I think it will accelerate right now. As I said, Jack, earlier, their builders are more optimistic that they can capitalize on this demand resiliency and they feel better. And part of that is the last several months they've seen strength. So their builders listening to the public companies on their conference calls are planning on reaccelerating their starts with a disproportionate amount of that start likely to be spec. So in some cases, it might be 60% will be spec, 40% will be built order. Other builders could be closer to 100% will do spec, that they're spec builders where others are predominantly built to order. But on average, I think we are going to see a reacceleration um, because of the strength that we've seen the last uh, prior few months. And that will, that will stop if demand slows. Then they'll pull, you know, it's kind of the yin and yang. They're going to be likely to react pretty quickly, which is a good thing if they see the market start to weaken. And what is your outlook, uh, Zellman and Associates outlook on a lot of the home building stocks? If, you know, just I'm picking, picking, you know, one of them, they have a price to earnings ratio of, you know, eight or 10, that seems pretty cheap, but is that, is that pricing in on the, you know, in the forward market, uh, a lot of price appreciation? I mean, if, if prices go down 1% or don't move it a whole lot, uh, the, the economics might change quite rapidly. Well, I won't talk about specific names, uh, but I would just say that generally the home building industry has always been looked at more on a price to book basis because the amount of land that they own on balance sheet and in total, it's about what the expected returns are on that land investment. So when we look at the returns that were achieved in 2021 and really 22, many of these builders saw 
returns exceeding what would be north of 20 plus percent, 25 percent. And those returns into 23 because of the margin pressure that they've had in ensue because of mortgage rate buy downs and, and pricing pressure overall, we're seeing returns compress. So when we look at price to book, the relationship of price to book is much more important as it's correlated to return on investment, return on on equity. And as return on equity is on a larger book compressing, we think those multiples will be more challenging to expand. They could hold, but we think they're more likely to contract given the return on um, capital return on equity that we think is going to continue to decline. But that's predicated in our view that the housing market also is not going to grow and will be more muted and benign. The growth being one, because of the challenges in land, again, the local municipality getting infrastructure, those aspects and the inflation, we've seen no abatement in land prices at all during 22 when home prices were under pressure. So land is very difficult to acquire and depends on the returns needed. And as well, many private builders that we speak to are talking about challenges still on, again, getting something as simple as sewage or water. And those are factors that will keep growth more muted. So, so again, yeah, without talking about specific names, um, I mean, are you seeing in the stocks for, for uh, builders are you know, are they, are they fair value? Or, I mean, are they still quote cheap uh, on that price to book ratio or are they getting quite? No, they're they're The median price to book right now is 1.7 times that's um, weighted market cap. So that's by no means, you know, cheap. That would be historic. You know, if you were just looking at the group and say normalized 1.25, 1.3 times book, we have books that are trading above two times book. You know, the old adage of this very, very cyclical boom bust industry, which it's not anymore, was you buy them at book, you sell them at two times book. The builders are the public builders are much better positioned than they've ever been from a balance sheet perspective. They have very little debt relative to their prior cycles. In many a case, they're generating in in where periods where they're growing cash flow. They're really much more professional organizations, I think, can weather the cyclicality better. Does that mean they should be re-rated? I mean, many of these companies saw earnings decline as a result of the slowing in 22 into 23, anywhere down 40 to 70%. And we had really like not even a full year of earnings pressure. So they're, they're still very exposed to what happens with the overall macro. And I think that assuming they their troughs are higher than prior cycles, they don't have the losses they've had in prior cycles, then it's possible that the investment community will move away from the price to book as the metric they care about and start looking at PE more. But for right now, there's too much history and not a downturn that we're living through yet to say, okay, it's different this time. These builders are, you know, all the great things we just said, they're going to have a much higher trough earnings or no losses, no impairments. Everything's going to be great. I don't think the investment community is ready to say that. Although 1.7 times book, a lot of good news is reflected in that maybe there is a soft landing coming. Maybe some people are arguing that that re-rating should already come to fruition, which we're re- more reluctant to make that call at this point because they haven't gone through really an economic recession. As much as 22 might have felt like a recession to them, it wasn't an economic recession with respect to significant job losses, which it feels like we're going in that direction. 
Right. So uh, look at other housing related industries. So there's uh, companies that own the land. You said the price of land is, is going up, that the cost for builders, but it's a, you know, the, the profit or the revenue of companies that own a lot of land and then building products uh, outlook. So, you know, home improvement companies and, and stuff like that. What is your outlook on those two industries? Well, we cover the building products industry. We have 17 companies under coverage in that sector. And I would just say you really see the manufacturing distributors somewhat um, exposed differently. So we have manufacturers that are selling to builders, selling to dealers that are predominantly selling to contractors that are doing home improvement, or they're selling direct to overall retailers like Home Depot and Lowe's. There's also the non-res piece where they're selling various building materials to um, contractors and developers that are doing all commercial real estate, including multi. So depending on the company, they're very different, um, maybe end markets and what percent matters. So it's a little bit more heterogeneous than let's say the new home market, just as you think about them, that's very homogeneous. But what I would say about building product companies is that those that are more skewed to home improvement, we expect that that segment of the market will normalize. As I was talking about multifamily rents that they nearly doubled, tripled relative to sort of historic trend line, so did home improvement spend. You know, pandemic winners, you know, they called it the honey to-do list. You know, people were home doing projects. They were putting home money back into their homes. And a lot of that arguably went bananas. I mean, it, it surged to levels we have not seen. A trend line for home improvement spend, you know, runs in the four to 6% range. Historically, we were well north of 10%. And certain categories outperformed other categories. So I think we're seeing normalization in that segment of the market and arguably big ticket and some of the more affluent segments of that market are holding up better than lower ticket. But we've seen comps slow at Home Depot and Lowe's substantially, more so DIY. But we think the pro and big ticket will follow. And it's a lot of it's just normalization. If we get a recession, there'll be more pressure. And the office market, because of the CRE market, we are also expecting the non-res market will be, continue to be challenged. The building product companies that we're going to see challenges with home improvement, continuing to accelerate, normalize the wallet pressured there, and the non-res market that's also going to see deceleration and pressure because of the challenges of CRE are going to be really looking to the new resi market where they're exposed for acceleration to offset those other segments. But some of our building product companies are almost 100% focused on new resident, re, new construction, and that's where our analysts are more bullish versus those that are very much only home improvement. And those are probably the area we're more cautious, not to say they're in any type of severe downturn, but there is a lot of inventory in the market. We know that there were many of their customers that just overordered and have significant inventory that they're now destocking. And that's part of this normalization process that's hurting new orders that is allowing for the backlog to really shrink as new orders are, are not accelerating. You got a very interesting chart show, showing that in years where the unemployment rate increases, uh, home improvements really uh, lose a, a share of, of wallets. So, you know, when it's very dependent on the economy, when the economy is not right. good and you, you know, folks are folks are losing their job, they don't want to uh, you know improve their home. Well, also if they're worried about um, overall home price deflation, and even though there was a substantial amount of equity during the great financial boom the amount of equity didn't hold up during the downturn, the home improvement market. In other words, 
even though we'll say, well, people have tremendous equity right now. Look, home prices went up just as much as they did in the great financial boom or more. People have all that equity. They'll keep fixing up their home if they're not going to move. But at least in prior downturns, that equity wasn't enough to keep them spending. I think it has a lot to do with confidence. So if you're worried about your own wallet, you're worried about your own job or your neighbors lost his job or your buddies that you hang out with have lost their job, it starts to really um, put pressure on consumers' sentiment and overall confidence and therefore investing in their homes might take a back seat. Like I said, plus they did you know, significant amounts during the pandemic that pulled forward a lot of demand. Thanks. Uh, now let's talk about the somewhat uh, technical mortgage market. So mortgage spreads relative to U.S. Treasuries. So the 30-year mortgage uh, qu- is quite well above, perhaps you know, 300 basis points above the 10-year Treasury yield, which is above historical levels. Um, and uh, then how much of that has to do with who is buying those uh, mortgage-backed securities? And, and I think we should highlight here, Ivy, that we're talking about agency mortgage-backed securities. So uh, instruments that, from a credit perspective, really are very safe, unlike the subprime private label mortgage-backed securities that uh, caused so much damage in 2006, uh, seven, and eight, which needs to say had a lot of credit risk. Uh, so is the fact that the Federal Reserve is now doing quantitative tightening and not buying mortgage-backed securities is actually letting them roll off, as well as banks are shrinking their balance sheet, is that ex- ex- exerting some pressure on the mortgage-backed security spread? And you know, we can talk about the technicals of the market about, you know, what, what where the line is on the chart or the data point, but how much of this actually has an impact on the real life uh, housing market? Well, we, we could sort of sp- uh, make it more um, generalized to layman terms. You know, today, if you think about three points, 300 basis points is the spread roughly. It's maybe 293, 297, just say it's three points. So if the 30 year fixed rate is three points higher than the 10 year treasury, and it normally is, let's say, one and a half points. So if you have U.S. treasuries that are now hovering around 4%, mortgage rate should be 5.5%. But because the spread is three points, 300 basis points, mortgage rates are 7%. So it's much more expensive because spreads have widened. question is, why have spreads widened? And that's what you're really asking. And I think part of it is the Fed is not an incremental buyer. They're allowing the mortgages to run off, to your point. So there's less demand from the Fed. Secondly, investors that are buying mortgage-backed securities are demanding a higher return because their concerns are several, one of which is maybe the economy does weaken and I have more risk of delinquency, default, foreclosure. You also have the concern that if, in fact, the economy slows and rates were to actually come down, I have prepayment risk. Therefore, on the Gini side, They don't want to take the prepayment risk and they want a higher return to mitigate that as a concern. So those are some of the factors that why spreads are really double what historically they normally would be. But it certainly has an impact on affordability and what consumers have to pay in order to acquire a home in terms of their mortgage rate. It directly impacts the consumer. So mortgage rates are now slightly higher because mortgage-backed security spreads over treasuries are higher, and that does have to do with the Fed's quantitative tightening. Likewise, when the Federal Reserve was doing quantitative easing for a lot of the past decade, but in particular, you know, 2020, when it bought a, a huge amount of mortgage-backed securities, how much of that was a sort of net credit easing where, you know, you talk to someone, they say, yeah, I got a mortgage rate at 2.7% in the summer of 2020. How much of that do you think is because of the Federal Reserve? Sure. I mean, the Fed was like, you know, the joke is, you know, it's kind of like the Fed was supporting 
the market with free money and allowing for, you know, it's kind of like we're, we're the addicts and we need more supply, you know, to keep us, you know, high and everybody wants free money. And I think the Fed was doing everything they can to mitigate a catastrophe from the pandemic and therefore were the buyer of, of MBS. And they significantly loaded up on MBS, allowing for rates to come down substantially. And now they're not necessarily sellers. That, that's, an, that's another risk if they were tried to, if they became a seller, which has been talked about, but they're not selling right now. So absolutely was a significant catalyst for rates falling. And I think that, you know, many people bought overall government bonds, um, MBS included as a government backing, whether it be implicit, explicit, as a safer place to be in an economy that was really poised to have a substantial meltdown because of the pandemic. So again, you, you focus so much on residential real estate, uh, not the general economy. But if I may ask you your you know view for 2024, I guess there's sort of four camps. There's the the hard landing, uh, so you know the deep recession, and then there's a, the mild recession camp. Uh, there's the soft landing camp. Uh, so inflation comes down, but growth doesn't enter in a recession. And then there's the no landing camp where recession and growth are just going to keep on reaccelerating. I could just tell you that where I'm probably more focused about the risk to the housing market and to the overall economy relates to some of the challenges we're having in the environment in the climate arena, and especially how that impacts shelter. And that's where I'm spending right a lot of time trying to understand as you know, all of our kids today, those Gen, Gen Z and millennials learned in school and us older boomers and extras didn't focus on it until we smelt smoke out our windows um, and walked outside in excessive heat. But really more importantly, what's the impact on, on some of the aspects of spending related to consumers buying homes today with home insurance surging and also home insurers exiting markets and just the cost of developers and impact for them in their non-resi exposure to areas that have more flooding risk, more fire risk. There's there's a lot of drivers that I think in the economy, especially around what we've seen this year, could increase and be more problematic. So, you know, you, you're looking at an election year, you've got a lot of challenges it relates to, you know, everything from, you know, the anxiety that my unfortunate children have to experience that is happening in our economy. You know, I don't believe we're going to have necessarily a severe economic downturn without a major catalyst. That catalyst could be within CRE. There's some, you know, significant exposure and and that area went, you know, well above its skis with respect to exposure. But again, so if I was a betting woman here, I would be betting that we're going to see more of a slowdown than anticipated by those that are looking for no hard landing, no soft landing, just a continued optimistic view. So I'm not putting my money in equities if that helps to summarize my view. Thank you. And so I think a lot of the markets where they're very high beta, when the housing markets boom, that's where they're booming the most. Uh, Arizona, Florida, Texas, I think of those as uh, having more climate risk. I believe it was some uh, um, insurance companies that pulled out of Florida because of flooding risk. So flooding in, in, in Florida, wildfires, California, drought in, in Phoenix. I mean, over a long term view, how do you think that is going to impact the, the real estate market? You know, you have to think about long term, if, if you're saying, okay, Florida could be underwater or, you know, there'll be markets where you can't access water or, or parts of the country will be, you know, um, basically burnt and, and on fire. You know, those are some of the, you know, 2050 and beyond forecasters are very worried about with the carbon emissions and not getting to carbon neutral. 
But, you know, we're hosting a housing summit. We have actually a climate panel the week of September 18th um, that we're hosting. And as the more I learn about it, the more I see near-term challenges that could create consumers' awareness that there's real concern if I buy a home in these geographic markets that are more at risk of having problems, including acquiring homeowners insurance, as we saw State Farm exit California, Farmers Insurance basically exit 100,000 policies and not renewing those in Florida in those geographic areas that are most exposed. So I think that the, the reason the insurers are exiting is because they're losing money, because unfortunately they're regulated and the way they determine premiums is backward looking and not looking at the risks of what climate can do incrementally to all these areas, excessive heat, flooding, fire, et cetera. So there is a likelihood, I, I would say I'm more bullish on the central part of the country, as we may start to see that migration that happened, you know, going into the smile states, as I call it, might start migrating back to the middle of the country where climate is not as risky with respect to all the factors that we mentioned, flood, you know, obviously um, fire and water being challenges. So, you know, I would, I would think over time we might see that migration start to reverse. Mm, thank you. So, Ivy, if your you know, forecast over the next year or two for new and existing home prices is somewhere in the range of 0% for price growth, where does that place you on the spectrum of uh, real estate and residential real estate housing analysts? Is, is, is that somewhat consensus? Are, are you bearish or is a 0% price growth even bullish because everyone else is, is much more bearish than you? No, I think that analysts are more optimistic um, than negative. I think there was a time like um, CoreLogic was pretty negative. They're not really stock analysts, but I'd say people are more optimistic, and especially as it relates to the new construction market, and that's mostly predicated on the share gains that they're likely to continue to, um, you know, benefit from the existing home market being so constrained, and and I don't really see that that changing that the existing market starting to loosen up. How is that going to happen? You know, there's been some lobbying efforts to provide investors, you know, 33 million homes are owned by investors that rent them out. You know, less than 2% of those roughly are institutional investors. So they're really mom and pop. And and I think there was a pretty substantial survey done by um, some nonprofit NAR related um, organizations. Like, do you want to sell to these investors? And the answer was, I would, I made a ton of money, but I don't want to pay capital gain tax. So what they're legislating or what they're lobbying for is, is that, is there a way to um, reduce or eliminate a capital gain tax for investors if they sell that home to a first-time buyer? And would that loosen up inventory? Because really the big question, Jack, is will home prices decline if inventory remains as tight as it is? And you really, you know, especially if people are not losing their jobs, you can see that home prices could be more resilient. So I think you have to have job destruction and consumer confidence start to be pressured in order to see our forecast come to fruition. So while we don't want to make official forecasts, our, our collective view as a team is that we are not going to weather this normalization or this Fed tightening cycle without some pain. Right. Well, people can uh, check out more of your work to learn more at zelmanassociates.com. Ivy, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure you, hearing your, your insights. So thanks for coming on and thank you everyone for watching. I appreciate it. Thank you.